0: This is the Darcy Giro Podcast, episode 31. Today, my guest is Herr Byland, Associate Professor in Entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University. And today, he's going to give us a lesson in how to think about the economy. Per Byland, Welcome to the Darcy Drill podcast. How are things?
1: Thanks for having me. Things are great. How are you?
0: Yeah, good. Good. Glad we could make this work. Um you are in sunny Tulsa, Oklahoma today?
1: I am. That's uh, what I call home nowadays. Yeah. And it's uh, actually sunny pretty often. But other than that, the weather is not not good very often.
0: Well, it is big sky country, is it not?
1: It is, absolutely. So the weather comes and goes really quickly, but it's sort of a, has a combination of the worst of two worlds, really hot and humid summers and really cold and nasty winters.
0: I'll let you introduce yourself. I mean, I know you are an Austrian economist, a fellow at the Mises Institute, and you are, I'm not sure the name of the university that you work at, but you're, I believe you're in the business department there. Could you, could you let the listeners know a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Swedish, born and raised in Sweden, where I did my first, I spent the first three decades or so in Sweden. Uh, this is my, now I'm in, in academia, as mentioned, I'm this is my probably third career on three continents. I am now an associate professor of entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University. And I'm also, as you mentioned, a, a senior fellow of the Mises Institute, and I've been writing for them for probably 20 years now.
0: Right on. Well, a lot of my listeners are definitely fans of the Mises Institute and all the the great work they do. So the reason I wanted to have you on was to talk about your newest book. I believe it came out last year, and its title is very relevant to us here in Canada because I believe more Canadians need to know how to think about the economy, and especially our political class. So, I'd actually like to go through the book a little bit it's It's really well done. a great little primer on on economics in general, but it is definitely um, kind of geared towards the Austrian school. but I don't really think there's anything in it that any mainstream economists would would disagree with um is th- Is that accurate?
1: I think that depends on who you ask, probably. But, I mean, you would think that it's it's, since it's so basic that everybody would agree, I'm not so sure they would. And especially in the beginning when I talk about what economics does and what economists do, uh, that section is probably to to a a layperson that would be, yes, okay, so… No, no big deal, but to another economist, it would probably be very provocative <laughs> okay. i'm I'm basically saying that the point of economics is to understand what the heck is going on and f- and figure stuff out and uncover the real processes and i claim I claim and I argue that there are things that are never changing, there are economic laws that aren't arbitrary and they're they're not contingent either they're always true. Uh, and those are the things sort of that traditional economists, classical economists uh, believed in that, that economics was based on. But nowadays, economists sort of have, they suffer from a pretty a big physics envy. So they really want to dig into data and, and do everything that way instead of of sort of theorizing and philosophizing about society, which is really what social sciences did from the beginning and, and in my view should do.
0: Mm hmm. You'll have to forgive me, because I, I'm actually not uh, familiar with any school of economics other than the Austrian school. It's kind of the only thing I've ever I've ever read, and of course it was my libertarian leanings that brought me to that. So let's just go through the book. You, you basically start the book off with a, a definition of what economics is, and I think, uh, like you said, definitely from the Austrian perspective, a lot of... Canadians and a lot of our uh, policymakers probably have a different understanding of what uh, what an economy is so that one in particular what so explain what an economy is
1: right so there there are s- several ways you can explain it i mean i i, I have i think i think two or three different ways in in the book one is simply that it's all of our actions it's all of us sec- animizing trying to figure out how to get as much as possible out of the little we have and as much as possible is not really about stuff it's not really about products it's about getting as high standard of living as possible uh leading as good lives as possible and of course we we only have a little bit of food we only have a little bit of space we only have a little bit of time so we need to use it to the best of our abilities and and in the best way that we ourselves see fit so i mean that's that's one part of it and the other then, of course, is is that if this is the case, then we really need to think about production because production is how we use the world in order to make it more useful to us. That's how we can take can just virgin land, uh, which is not super useful always, uh, and make that very useful and very productive for us so that we can, say, feed a lot of people, we can house a lot of people, we can travel to the moon and stuff like that. You can't really do that with just... Nature itself. So production is is the big problem. The issue is, what do we produce? When do we produce it? How do we produce it? Those sort of questions. And economic studies that. Mm-hmm. So with with the, with of course the the goal is 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 to maximize how 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 people can get better lives on their own terms.
0: Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, when we look at policymakers, you know, when they make. St- statements about how they're going to fix the economy or they're going to manage the economy a certain way. Uh, given the the way you just explained the economy, it seems almost a, a contradiction.
1: Yeah, it is. And I mean, that's part also why modern economists have deviated from what economics used to be, too. Because since pol- politicians are trying to create another type of world, and they're really trying to to in a sense uh, sidestep the facts that th- resources are limited and they just want to just with a snap of the fingers or by magic create more or just pretend that, oh, we can all have everything right now if we just tax the rich a little more, or whatever it might be, right? With yeah. and it's, it's all about distribution and they think that, or at least it seems like rhetorically, they, they give the impression that we already have enough or more than enough it's just that it's unequally distributed which is of course not not the case uh, if, if you go back in to the 1800s and, and and even further back in time economists talked about value creation and value distribution and value distribution is it's very important but not as not more important than value creation because if you don't create anything you'd have nothing to distribute Mm-hmm. And of course, politicians don't create anything at all. They just want to take what others create and distribute it uh, in a way that they think is better. And they pretend that value creation is is automatic or automagic, maybe I should say. Um, so that there's a lot of value being created and and you don't really need to do anything about it. And no one has to think about it. And all you need to do is just distribute it in a different way and we get more of it magically. It, it's, a, it's a very strange way of, of seeing the world. Uh, and since politics is such a big part of society and has such an effect on society then they will need to justify a lot of these policies that they enact every every day pretty much so economists today they're really just policy uh, assessors or they're they're trying to figure out how to tweak policies to make them more effective or get the results you need and everything like that. So it's, it's focused almost exclusively on prediction and policy making, whereas it used to be to figure out how the economy works, whether or not there is policy and to the extent there is policy.
0: That's right. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're using economic data, business like businesses corporations would use economic data to you know try to uh, create value for their their customers or try and get a wedge in a market somewhere or whatever and that seems justifiable and then economic data as it relates to i mean policy like government policy is is used differently i guess you would say like it's it's used more as um, You know, a way to a way to uh, target target votes more than anything, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I think there are plenty of things involved there, really, in, in what you mentioned there. Because uh, part of it is that, yeah, businesses use data. And they use data in order to minimize the chance of error. And all we know, as an, as an entrepreneurship professor and former entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs fail most of the time. So even though they're focusing on a very very narrowly defined market segment with certain type of person only, they still can't make it right. And then politicians try to do it for everyone with the one size fits all, and they think that works. Mm-hmm. And of course, you have that little little detail too that any entrepreneur or business, if they get it wrong, they suffer themselves because it's their money, right? So so they they always have the fear of making a loss because that's going to su- make them suffer and their family suffer whereas politicians they use other people's money so if they if they don't get it right it doesn't really matter they just do it again mm-hmm. or rather as is usually the case that produces an argument for them to do more because it obviously wasn't enough right so so if they fail that's a reason for them to have even more power so the incentives are completely opposite really for business and for government
0: yeah yeah absolutely uh that's why i wanted to have you on you're capable of saying these things far better than myself (laughs) um let me uh let's jump ahead a bit into your the section on economic theory the in particular the the chapter called unpacking human action um i think a lot of the listeners are familiar with Mises and I don't know how many of them have read his treatise human action, but again, but I guess I'd still like, you know, an overview. I can't, I never get enough of hearing about Mises's human actions. So,
1: well, sure. I mean, that's also something that, uh, that distinguishes the Austrians from other economists because other economists, they would use all kinds of assumptions and then they would look at the data and they wouldn't have sort of one, uh, consistent framework for studying the world. Whereas for Austrians, yeah, we have praxeology and everything is derived from action defined as purposeful behavior. And from there we can drive a whole lot of truths. And and are the why do I call them truths? Well simply because action is purposeful behavior. It can't be anything else. It always and necessarily is purposeful behavior. So whatever you logically derive from that necessarily has to be true too. Unless of course you make make an error.
0: Yes, sorry. Can you can you explain why uh human action is purposeful behavior and can't be anything else?
1: Well, sure, cuz action is is when we try to uh, effect a change in the world in order to make our our situation better. Right? And and if we would just act or or behave randomly, then we wouldn't be able to attain any ends. We wouldn't actually be aiming for anything at all. And that's something that we can't really figure out what that means for us because we know every day we are making choices. Every day we are purposeful in a whole lot of things we do. We might not be purposeful in everything, but everything might not be an action either, right? But everything that causes a change in the world is part of or is an action in itself. So, it's, it's really inconceivable to us to figure out what it would be to be a human being without acting Mm -hmm. because that's what we all do. And we can, we can through Mises talks about introspection, right? That we can just look inside ourselves and, and see that, well, why did I do this? And why, what, why am I doing this? Well, because I'm trying to achieve something. I'm trying to get, get to get someplace or I'm trying to create something, or there's, there's something that I'm trying to attain, whatever it might be. Right. And therefore we can also assume probably justifiably so, that other people are the same. that They're they're also acting in order to attain something. But what exactly they're they're trying to attain, well, I mean, that's in their minds and based off of whatever information they might have. It might be completely different. We might think that it looks stupid or whatever, but, but they're acting. We can't really think of a world, what it would look like, or ourselves, what we would look like if we would not act purposefully, because we would be automatons. And we would not really have, would we have consciousness at all? I mean, if we would have consciousness without acting, we would be slaves, right? Because we would just be sitting in there in our heads and just watch the body do stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. The next section, section three, how to do economics. And I I like this one too. You go through some, uh, like the price mechanism and, you know, the meaning of exchange and that sort of thing. So could, could you tell us a little bit about that chapter?
1: Well, sure. I mean, well, se- several things sort of come and go back and forth in, in, in the book, but I'm I'm ex- extending the framework and, and helping. In a sense, I'm t- trying to take the reader's hand and lead them through economic reasoning to show them how it's done and what you can actually learn from just thinking logically through the step-by-step. I, I don't know if I, I mentioned to you, but but when I wrote the book, I was... I mean, it's, 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 it's a good idea to have someone in mind when you're writing something so that you know who the heck you're, you're sort of targeting. Mm-hmm. Because the level of language and and how long you might be and all of this depends on who is going to read it. And when writing this book, I, I sort of had someone's grandma in mind. So you should be able to, and I make no promises, but... <laughs> The point was that you should be able to give this to your grandma and grandma should be able to read it. So it's not I mean, it's it's not a, a super big commitment to read it because it's so short and, and it should be easy enough for her to read it and understand what is going on. Maybe not grasp everything and maybe maybe not be able to apply everything, but come out of reading the book with a much greater understanding for how the economy works. I mean that that was the the point of it, so so that's why it's 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 very brief, it's very to the point.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, some some details might be missing here and there, I'm, I don't know. Some of details might be, even be wrong. Who knows? I I haven't heard any yet, but I'm sure <laughs> someone was going to find them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I certainly am not smart enough to find anything wrong with this. I, I guess when you get into you know how the market works, and you get into subjects like. Uh, value and uh price and economic calculation you know i i think a good understanding of that really justifies um you know what what we could would consider like the libertarian kind of world view would you would you agree with that
1: yeah i do and uh and that's sort of i i guess a, a problem for austrian economics too that The way I usually phrase it is that as soon as you start understanding how the economy works and the economy as an economy, then you realize the real cost of regulations and real cost of trying to tamper with this process and the real cost. I mean, I wrote wrote another book uh, on the actual costs that that is called The Seen, The Unseen and the Unrealized, where I go through also the process and how it works, but but, uh, with a focus on what is the actual cost of regulating there's Just a little bit over here and nothing else. Well, it changes the structure of the whole freaking thing and, and distorts the whole economy. So it's, the cost is enormous. So as soon as you as, as start reading Austrian economics and, and, and you start to understand how the economy works in this sort of fragile balance that exists and that allows for progression and the creation of, of wealth and prosperity, then any tampering with it appears so costly, especially compared to economists' analyses, which are just based on sort of a a minor fraction of the real long-term cost of it. So seeing that the regulations are so costly, it's really hard to say that, no, I'm still a socialist. God done it, and, and I, I'm I'm still gonna have a, a huge government and propose that because I think it's so important. Because you have to justify it to yourself at least, saying that well, these costs <clears throat> they are so much bigger than I ever thought they might be, uh, they're still worth it. Mm-hmm. So of course it's harder.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd actually I'm curious about your book, uh, the the seen, the unseen, and the unrealized. Uh, the reason I asked is is because I actually I've looked for it and I can't seem to find um, an affordable copy of it in Canada. Do you, is, do you know why that is?
1: <laughs> well, that's because there are no affordable copies in the world. <laughs> so it, it was published using an academic publisher and, and and their niche in the market is to publish um, low volume and they make that up on a higher price. So I think that... Oh. Well I think I think you can get the paperback or or ebook for like 45 50 bucks something like that. So it's it's not super cheap. It's not like this one which you can get for 5 bucks.
0: That's right. But uh now cuz in the in your your book um how to think about the economy, you do you like the final section is on regulatory intervention and it's broken down into the seen the unseen and the unrealized. Can I assume that is uh a condensed overview of of your larger academic book.
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely. Is.
0: Yeah, right
1: on. And it, uh, the the other book, I mean, it's it's much longer than this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, much longer. It's nor like normal length. with right. This one is really short. Yeah. Uh, and it it really goes through the whole argument and 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 make sure that the reader understands it. I mean I use it in my teaching for instance to to discuss entrepreneurship versus regulations and and how how they how how they interact and affect each other that sort of thing to, to really get give the students an insight into how these things work and what the costs are. Um, right. so but you're right that 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 chapter is a very very short version of of that book.
0: Right, okay. Um so let let's talk about that a bit too cuz the scene, the unseen and the unrealized, it's I mean it's very much in line with uh some bastiat type stuff and some Henry hazlitt type stuff. Uh so can can you walk us through the like the relation between the un unse- the scene, the unseen and the unrealized?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean the scene and the unseen, you're you're right. They they're, they're uh, Completely ripped off from from uh, Bastiat and, and Hazlitt. I mean, Hazlitt copied Bastiat, I guess. So, yeah. so it's from Bastiat. Uh, I mean, the scene is the direct effect that that is obvious for anyone. So, in the the um, uh, the way Bastiat phrases it is that I think it's the baker's son is playing in, with rocks and he's he's throwing a rock through the baker's window, and and he, he says, "Well." The first thing that happens is people gather around and they say basically naughty boy you shouldn't play with rocks and you destroy things and then he says inevitably someone will say well this might not be so bad because this means the baker has to buy a new window so the glazer gets more business which means they can scale up and they can hire more people maybe pay their workers more so this is actually good for the economy and then everybody go oh yeah you're right that's 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 brilliant yeah of course And this is sort of an argument that you would see people like Paul Krugman make all the time. And this is why it's called the the broken window fallacy, because you're looking at what happens as an effect of this destruction. The unseen is, well, what would the baker have done with that money that he he now must use to pay the glazer? What would he have done with that money otherwise? Well, he might have gone to buy a, a... a coat or shoes or something like that, but maybe even for his son, but not anymore. So it's not only the scene that matters, it has to be uh, balanced by the unseen what otherwise would have happened. And that's uh, what what both Hazlitt and Bastia say that a good economist necessarily looks at both. Mm -hmm. So you have to see what actually happened and the counterfactual and compare the two so if you do that, then, of course, any regulation will seem much more costly because then you see the real cost, the opportunity cost of, of info, implementing the regulation. The unrealized is sort of my, my attempt to make this um, more obvious for, for how it affects real, uh, regular people or even poor people. So it's it's the long-term effects, but it's the effects in terms of what options they actually have. So imagine that there are regulations a little here and there. Well, a regulation really just means that whoever wants to invest in that space or or do business in that space cannot anymore. That's, that's what a regulation means. Or maybe it's just more costly because there are black market um, businesses too, right? But because they can't go there, and of course an entrepreneur would go where they think that they could make the most money. So and making the most money means that you're offering the highest value possible for consumers. So if if your regulation means that you choose something else, you will choose something that is of a lesser value for yourself and consumers, at least when you make the choice. So already there, we said, okay, so society obviously loses something. And also since... Resources are scarce. These resources are now dedicated to a line of production that is going to produce less value than they otherwise would be. Mm-hmm. But it also means that whoever is the, on the receiving end, well, they get options that are of lower value too. So when you go when you go to the store and the regulations all over the place affecting entrepreneurs in, in say food production, you have all these all these products, and you might think that they are rich because there's so many different products in the grocery store. Well, imagine how many more valuable options are not there because regulations forced all these entrepreneurs and food producers to not pursue the highest valued end. That's the unrealized. All those choices that we could have and probably would have made had it not been for regulations. And and the whole point then, of course, is to talk about how super costly, especially in the longer term and for the poor people, regulations are because they are, of course, affected most.
0: Uh, you have a wonderful short section on monetary intervention, which is a big part of the Austrian school, and unfortunately, too many people, you know, here in Canada and all around the world, still don't understand. Uh, how monetary intervention um, has an impact on their life. So, could we, first of all, maybe give us a, in your words, a, a description of the boom bust cycle.
1: Right, and that's that's probably the crown jewel uh, of Austrian economics because it sort of ties everything together. So. Making that section really short was really hard. Yeah, <laughs> it it builds builds off of everything else in Austrian economics, and I mean Austrian Austrian economists are known, at least if you ask themselves, um, for such things as heterogeneous capital, which is for most people an obvious thing that, hey, look at that a a, a toothpick and a train is not the same thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, ob- obviously.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But most economists would, in their models, say, well, the toothpick is, say, five cents and the train is, I have no idea what a train is, but 50 million. So you have capital of 50 million and five cents. And then you can just uh, split that capital however you wish and maximize the output. Of course, if you know that it's a toothpick and a train, you can't really do that. So a big part of Austrian economics is to figure out these these complexities in the economy because capital is actually specific things and not just the dollar amount. And that makes it really hard when, when reinvesting, say say there, there are a lot of investments happening in, in producing housing or something like that, then you will dedicate a lot of productive capital, a lot of production factors, both personnel People will be educated and they will be trained in certain things for producing housing. You will use a lot of wood and concrete and trucks and whatever else for this line of business. If that is not really directed towards consumer uh, consumers, what they want and what they are expected to demand, then it's going to be really hard to take those houses apart and use those resources elsewhere. So it's gonna take time, it's gonna be very costly. You have to re-educate people and all this stuff, right? So it's it's this much much harder than it looks like in, in a mathematical formula in any other school of economic thought. Right. So the problem then in, in the Austrian business cycle theory is that, well, we don't we look at the business cycle to begin with and not just the bust. And, and most others, they would, would say, well, why was there a bust? And Austrians don't say, why is there a bust? Austrians say, well, why was there a cycle? Why was there an unsustainable boom that led to a bust and needed to uh, end up in a bust? Right? what was it that, that made this boom unsustainable to begin with, right? That's the real question. And, and there we have that, well, it's, it's the expansion of credit. So if government or the banking system create a whole lot of more money uh, and make that available f- through loans, what that usually means is that the interest rate drops because there's so much so much money available. So banks compete with each other. And how do they compete? Well, they lower the interest rate uh, or the, the central bank lowers the interest rate for everyone so that more invests and so forth. Well, that means that a lot of entrepreneurs who didn't choose to start businesses because because they didn't expect to make enough money. They now can get a loan much, much cheaper. So they go, well, I can start a business. I'm gonna start a business and and produce this. So you get a a lot more economic activity, which to someone like Paul Krugman or any sort of mainstream economist activity would be the same thing as value creation. They, They seem to have no, understanding for this whole failure thing and that, <laughs> that there is uncertainty in action and, and everything. Uh, so action, activity just means more more prosperity and then that's it. So just make, make sure that people are active and then we get wealth. Um, so you get a lot more activity. This is activity that is really uh, a result of this extra credit. It's not really a result of consumers wanting them to produce more stuff because there is not more uh, production factors available there's just more money to buy production factors and of course this money typically ends up somewhere in the market first it doesn't just you don't spread it uh, like a helicopter money as Ben Bernanke talked about right you just throw it out from a helicopter and it ends up everywhere in sort of a a, um, uh a, a thin layer throughout society. That's usually not what happens, but there are some industries that for for whatever reason tend to get the money first or the most uh, investments and so forth, just like housing was uh, in the early 2000s, right? So, so those industries, they start to invest a lot. They start to hire more people. And of course they, they bid higher than others so that they attract people who are working in other sectors of the economy. So they start producing a lot more, they they buy a lot more inputs, and so forth. So you have a boom there. Um, That boom is not driven by consumers saying we want more housing, relatively speaking, right? Because of course, people want more housing, but they don't want more housing at the expense of other production. So so here here we have the scene and the unseen again, right? That that maybe they want they, they want more housing, but they would rather have more food or more roads or whatever. But now they get more housing, but not the food and not the roads. So this is a distortion, of course, of the economy. And you get this boom. These uh, businesses start making a lot of money because they're selling uh, to other businesses and, and nothing is really done yet. And they're using a lot of, uh, materials, and of course, since they're paying people more than their their previous employers did, uh, these people can consume more. So this typically means that there are more businesses bidding for resources, and at the same time, there are consumers trying to buy more stuff at the very same time. So in a sense, you're you're investing a lot of the capital. In terms of resources, and you're consuming the capital at the same time. Both are more than before, which of course is an impossibility because you don't have more resources just because we have more dollars. So, so that that, that sounds sustainable. Well, that can't really, it can't. You can't finish those production uh, processes, right? So eventually, since you are consuming and investing the same capital, eventually you're going to end up with a lot of businesses finding that they can't finish the projects. Uh, that prices go up so much because there are so so many bidding for the same resources, uh, that they can't afford to finish their projects. So they go under. They bring and therefore they they pull others with them. Uh, to their suppliers might might be unpaid, right? Their employees become unemployed and so forth, and that causes the bust. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then. And then, of course, since, since all these resources are invested in the wrong things, as, at least for consumers, they would rather have, in this case, the, the food and the roads, then the prices of these products that are, are, that are, to the extent that they are finished, they will plummet, which, of course, push a lot of more businesses out of business because now they can't cover their costs anymore. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. you have an all out recession
0: this is another area where um certain schools of thought on economics and the austrian school diverge because austrians tend to see the boom period as as a problem and that's why many austrian thinkers have been able to predict you know things like the crash in 2008 and other things like that because they know that eventually you have to pay the piper, and and viewing the – because it is a correction. So it is a – really, you got to look at the recession in a a more positive light in some ways, and then that is where the Austrian school diverges from other schools of thought on economics. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. So like I started out saying, most schools of thought, they tend to focus only on the bust – Mm-hmm. And in a sense, it makes sense because, yeah, the bust hurts. Yeah. A lot of people get unemployed uh, and, and there's just, it's terrible, especially the longer it is. I mean, if we get into a depression, then people are going to starve and there's, everything is just going down the tubes. So, of course, you, you want to avoid that. The The issue, though, is that they don't recognize what it is. They think, and very often they assume that, well, I mean, basically based off of, Marx or whatever, that this is an internal or in inherent contradiction of capitalism. So it just repeatedly grows beyond its limits and then it crashes, and that's that's just how the market works. There's like no basis whatsoever for that, right? Austrians would say rather that well, because we created this stupid, unsustainable boom, we will have a crash, and we of course we we can as Keynesians. Um, uh, recommend have another boom on top of the other boom when it starts crashing we just build another bubble and then we continue to push push, uh, the problem in front of us Uh, the problem is that these are investments in real resources that are in the wrong place compared to what consumers want so yeah you can push it a little bit but you're only going to make the problem worse and the problem is still there You can't avoid the crash altogether so for austrians the the recession is really a correction so it's really when entrepreneurs go out of business because they have over invested in stuff that consumers don't want they are not willing to pay pay the price for those goods and they do so uh, en masse really uh, and then you have other, other entrepreneurs who want to start businesses producing things that consumers actually want, but they were outcompeted competed because of these guys got cheaper credit. Right? So what needs to happen is that these resources need to get into the right hands. The problem here, then, is, of course, the toothpick and the train. That's, it's not that easy if you have already built a bunch of houses and say, oh, yeah, we needed that wood for other stuff. Well, that's going kind to of cost a lot and take a lot of, of 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 time and money to do that. So the recession is going to be there, and it's going to take a little time. The question is only: Do we let it uh, correct as fast as it can, or do we try to stop it? Do try to dampen the fall? By propping up some of these businesses so that they don't all go under at the same time, or do we let them go under and then let these other businesses start and hire new people and and start producing because that, that those are the options right and the problem with things like the depression is that the government stepped in and really tried to not only soften the fall but but try to sort of outspend the uh, the recession so to Basically, outdo it, uh, which just made, meant even more distortion.
0: Yeah, yeah, for and that sure.
1: prolongs the correction by by decades.
0: Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, you mentioned Keynes. Now, uh, Keynes gets a hard time in uh, free market uh, circles, especially the Austrians. But I, I, from my limited knowledge, and and I, I'm asking you this genuinely, I. It seems to me like even Keynes would roll his eyes at what our uh, you know the central banks and our policy makers are doing today because my understanding in his what of what he wrote in his general theory is that his idea was you could put on the gas and put on the brakes print some money take some money out of the economy to kind of level level it out but when it comes to this, like, endless thing of money printing, I did he ever actually propose that? Or is that something even outside of what he believed?
1: No, that's, I don't think you can find anything like that in his works. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a Keynes expert, but but the thing is that what we're doing now, I mean, I don't think there's any economic theory that has any answers to why this should work or what is going to happen, right? And, and Keynes was really... Uh, focusing on fiscal policy so like you said with with the gas and the brake Mm -hmm. that his point was that well the economy is going to go in in cycles it's going to grow way too quickly and then it's going to just die because of animal spirits was his his cause of the change right not not very scientific Um, but to him, then the, the solution was for the government to step in. So the government should tax extra when, when you're uh, when you're having a boom, just to make sure that it doesn't overheat. That's what one of those Keynesian sort of terms. And then when when the inevitable bust happens, you should the government should step in and invest that money to sort of help the economy get going again, uh, so get the wheels turning and. Well, you know all this stuff that politicians use all these terms. Yeah, um, yeah but he didn't really talk about monetary theory. Monetary theory is the monetarists with uh, Milton Friedman and right. those guys they talked about how how it should be a, a matter of the central bank and printing money and and so forth. Uh, and And fiscal policy, I, I think they they saw it as as not as effective as as fiscal policy. and of course now, the problem now is that, well, we have those two schools and, well, fiscal policy, I'm not sure anybody cares about that anymore, but <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah. that, that doesn't seem to work. And monetary policy also doesn't work. Yeah. So nobody really knows what is going on.
0: I guess the one last thing I want to point out, too, is that there is this, again, when, when it comes to monetary policy and, and monetary intervention, a lot of times it is the – poorest people who are impacted say these people are too poor to even get a mortgage. Um, They are then subsidizing people who are, you know, wealthy enough to even borrow money to buy a house. Is, Is that, is that accurate?
1: Well, I mean, in the sense that they are pushed out of the market, right? So, so there's less demand for all kinds of things because they're out of it. And, being poor, what that means is that you're already you already have very small margins. Mm-hmm. So you're already going to the grocery store, and it's not like you're just picking whatever you feel like that day, Yeah. right? Because no, you're looking at what is on sale and what can you afford, and then you pick and choose the better one, uh, and then try to minimize the expense, right? That's that's what it means to be poor. Uh, whereas the rich, they're not as price sensitive at all. So if money loses purchasing power by 10% a year or whatever, as it is now, then, well, that means that those margins that poor and then middle-class people might have had are gone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But for the rich people, that doesn't mean that they're gone. And rich people can also defend themselves in a very different way because to them, if, since they already have so much funds... Relatively speaking, it's much cheaper for them to hire an expert to help them find financial instruments to to protect them from these things. But if you are poor middle class, I mean, say you're saving, I don't know, five hundred dollars a month because in a college fund or something like that, you can't take out of those five hundred dollars to hire a person to look over your finances. That's, that's gonna eat up all your savings, right? But if you're a rich person and, and, and you you have capital of ten million dollars and then you have another you make another million every year or whatever in your in your job because you're I don't know, you're on the board for a Ukrainian nuclear power plant or something. <laughs> right? And and you're making all this money, it, it doesn't really matter. You you can afford to hire your own expert pretty much to invest your funds. Right, and then of course you have regulations uh, that that make things even worse. I mean, here in the U.S., we, we have this thing where the government does not allow you to invest in certain things unless you are what heck do they call it? Um you need to be approved as an investor, which means that you need a uh, I think it's an annual salary of two hundred fifty thousand dollars or a certain number of million in cash and then you can invest in such things as private equity and buy businesses and things like that but if you're middle class or poor you're not even allowed by the government so the government is really screwing you over but you never you never even notice that of course so so it's really the rich i mean they to them it's no big deal and they can defend themselves to the poor and the middle class it's a huge deal and they can't defend themselves
0: sure but I guess my question my question is really like when it comes to debt and the lowering of interest rates with monetary policy that that leads to inflation i mean the the very poor pay inflation just like anyone else, but there is a much larger uh portion of the population that benefits in some extent to lower interest rates so so to me it occurs kind of like a, a a subsidy in a way like it seems like the Poorer people are who can't even afford, you know, to be approved for a credit card or a mortgage or anything like that, are still bearing the brunt. And somebody who can get a mortgage or, has, you know, u- utilize their credit at least is then benefiting from lower interest rates.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, inflation is is really a redistribution of of wealth from those who. Who lend money to those who borrow money yeah so, I mean if, if you can afford and if you have the if you have enough money, you can go to the bank and borrow more right if you don't have money, you can't borrow money It's that simple unless you borrow well, for usury interest rates, you could probably get like a payday loan or 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 maybe a credit card with outrageous interest rates. But to get an affordable one, you already need funds and you need investments and so that sort of thing. But if you're poor, I mean, then then you don't have those those funds and you don't have those opportunities. If you're rich, you have those opportunities and then a the lower interest rate. That oh well, that that means that oh, maybe you should invest in this thing. Maybe you should buy this third yacht <laughs> uh, because now you can borrow the money at a very low rate and and then. It's going to be covered because you're investing in different countries anyway, and you have a couple of million dollars in Hong Kong and another couple of million here and, and whatnot else, right? So, you, so you can you can make sure that your your in investor professionals uh, make more money for you than uh, that they'll cover the, the cost of that loan, right? And of course, there are opportunities out there too, but you you can't if you're poor you can't you don't know about the opportunity usually, but even if you did you can't really get the loan either because no no bank is going to trust that you can pay it back.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, everything we've talked about leads into this idea of uh, the free market and entrepreneurship. I mean, you've mentioned it many times where uh, somebody can come in and utilize resources in a different way and and supply something of value to people. Um, you've done a lot of great writing on on entrepreneurship, and I think specifically from uh, kind of an Austrian standpoint. Uh, can you tell us kind of the the some of the stuff you've done on on entrepreneurial theory?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and there is a lot because I mean that's that's the the brunt of my work. Uh, my my day job is is to do that. Yeah. So I mean, what I've been looking into. Um, more recently, which in academic terms means maybe the last decade, but still, <laughs> um, is, is trying to figure out what what Mises is what Mises was actually talking about because he's he has this weird discussion about entrepreneurship uh, in human action where, well, I, I think this must have really hurt him. I mean, he must have hurt when he wrote this because he what he says is that well, from action using praxeology in this method we we can deduce that well the entrepreneurship broadly conceived is uncertainty bearing so well that means that in every action there is a part of it that is uncertain right so you, nothing that we do has a, has a perfectly certain outcome so that little uncertainty is uh, is entrepreneurship to him but then he says also that well we know that in the economy we know historically and empirically that a really important aspect of this and a part of entrepreneurship is what he refers to as the promoter and the promoter is really the the force in the economy that causes the big changes so it it completely disrupts the economy because of this new innovation in, in, in some shape or form and then he says well we can't use praxeology to define this so let's move on well, that must have sucked. It's something so important for the economy, which he and all Austrians, of course, identify as a market process that is entrepreneurially driven. And then you have the driving force itself. Yep. Can't define it. Sorry. Yeah. That's going got to suck. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I wonder if he maybe even cried when he wrote that, but <laughs> I mean, being, being true to, to the method and everything, he, he, he didn't have a choice. So I've been trying to look into what does that actually mean? Um, can we define it in some sense? And I wrote a piece uh, in the quarterly journal of Austrian economics in 2020, I think, where I tried to define it uh, so that we can actually use it in theory. So, so that's something that I, I think is, it has a huge potential in making Austrian economics really useful in, in entrepreneurship, both practice and theory. Uh, and I've I've continued to apply this a little bit. So in in a book that actually was released after how to think about the economy, but it's for academics. Uh, it's a modern guide to Austrian economics. Uh, I write a chapter on, on the market process where I, I claim that Mises promoter is something different than the whole market process as conceived of by Kirzner and Hayek and everybody else. Because they were basically talking about how entrepreneurs make corrections and adjustments within the system, in a sense. Right? They, they, Kirzner talks about how entrepreneurs, they find price discrepancies that no one else has seen yet. So they, oh, look at that low price over here and high price over here. So they buy at the low price and they sell at the high price. And of course, that that adjusts the prices, right? Finds a balance. Uh, So it's equilibrating. And I mean, that's an important function. Hayek is sort of talking about the same thing. Uh, And Mises throws in the promoter who is really disrupting things. So it's more like uh, Henry Ford starting his first uh, manufacturing plant uh and completely changes things i mean no one really was in in the business of of a, of a producing buggy whips or horse and carriage after that because suddenly cars were affordable and people started buying cars right so that was a new industry that happened and it changed everything right because suddenly you didn't need stables along the roads so instead you needed gas stations um and you needed a different type of infrastructure so all society completely changed right um, so those sort of things are not really covered by Kirchner and, and Hayek and, and the other Austrians. So, so that's something that that it I think it creates a very different model of the market process overall. So, so that's something that I'm that I'm really excited about because it it changes changes how we as Austrians see the market process, which I I didn't expect to find. And well, we'll see if I'm actually right or not, but but i i think it's exciting i haven't yeah. found a, a huge flaw in it yet
0: yeah well and and that's interesting especially with uh, kersner because i mean I, I i i'm not that familiar with kersner to be honest but uh, entrepreneurship is what he's most well known for is that not correct
1: yeah it is i mean that's uh, That's really his legacy. And he's written several books on it and a lot of articles. And he is uh, uh, one of the really big influences in entrepreneurship, the discipline, Mm -hmm. because of that.
0: Now, so do you see flaws in what Kirzner has written? Or is there just a a portion of it that is is missing somehow?
1: Well, that's the thing. That's what I argue in the book chapter uh, that I just mentioned, that If you take Kersner's model, well, you would have adjustments, you would have a dynamic marketplace and so forth, but it would all happen sort of within its own boundaries. It could be growing slowly too, but there would be no big shifts back and forth or sudden shifts, right? Now, if you would introduce someone or some force that introduces these shifts, that are shifts really in in terms of value creation, it's not not like a, a... a tsunami or an earthquake or something like that, because that's also, a, a, it shakes things up, of course, but it doesn't change anything internally. It isn't something that comes out of the economy and completely changes the structure of the economy. But the promoter does, I think. So, introducing just one promoter into the economy means that no other entrepreneur can really count on just adjustments. Yeah. Because if you're trying to adjust something and it's completely undermined and this, and the changed by someone coming out of left field, well, that means that it's really risky to just focus on adjustments. You probably need to focus on doing something, something much more drastic. So you need to use your imagination for how to serve consumers in an even better way. Which really then means that you as an entrepreneur, you're aiming to become a promoter right right? because you're trying to figure out new and novel innovative ways to satisfy consumers even if it's just in order to protect your investment from promoters which means the whole market process becomes a very different uh, beast altogether
0: Mm -hmm. yeah you know for Mises, just just to say that it couldn't be done I'm, i'm not sure what the logical boundary was for him there
1: Right but I mean to him it was simply that well you can't from action distinguish between someone who takes on a lot of uncertainty and someone who, does, who takes on a little less uncertainty right so okay. if so action itself doesn't distinguish between those two action is uncertain or not uncertain sure and of course everything is uncertain to some extent, but where do you draw the line uh, to define somewhere because there's a continuum from almost no uncertainty to really damn uncertain. But there, there's there's no obvious point where you say you draw the line. Oh, on this other side, there's a promoter because that's just arbitrary, mm-hmm. right? So so what I I do in my article is is create uh, really based on on my first book, The Problem of Production, where I, I produce a model of the economy and I, I provide sort of a mechanism for economic growth where that comes from, and I, I the model is a specialization deadlock where where I, in a sense, I didn't really realize that then, but in a sense, it's Kersner's model with everything happening inside the economy and nothing really breaking out of it. And I I argued that, well, that means that you might have steady, slow growth, but nothing is gonna take leaps forward because you're still just making adjustments to to be a little better and, and, and improve upon what is, right? But what about innovation? well and and then the question I asked in that book was, "How do you actually in introduce something that is completely novel in the economy because you don't have any suppliers you don't you don't have any customers you don't have any people to employ who know the stuff that they need to know right so you didn't start from scratch pretty much right? so yeah. so that book deals with that um and in a sense i'm I'm back to there. And now I'm, I'm I'm finding that well Mises talked about this as the promoter and I can define the promoter using the model that I published then back in 2015-16.
0: Yeah. I now is the term promoter the uh, an accurate description of of that individual or is that uh Mises's uh broken English?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It, it it's funny cuz Schumpeter, who was in the in the seminar together with Mises, mm-hmm. and is probably known as, as the big innovation theorist, he talks about the promoter too, but he means something completely different. So okay. <laughs> they use the same term. They knew each other. They studied together, both under Baumolovic in the same damn seminar. They both use the same English term, and they mean different things. Okay. Okay. So so I I, th- I think you might be onto something there that that Mises. Well, if it was broken English or not, it, maybe he didn't quite get it, or maybe he should have chosen a different term. I'm, I'm not sure. But promoter, it sounds like it's someone dealing with marketing, right? And 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 that's not what it means. What it means is someone who's causing these huge shifts in the economy. And, and that's not marketing. It requires marketing, I would think, right? Because mm-hmm. it's completely new. So you have to educate your, your customers on why this new thing would be good for them but that's not the same thing as saying that it is marketing all of it. Yeah. I don't think it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh no, that's that's very interesting. Um, okay. Tell the listeners where to f- where to find the book How to Think About the Economy.
1: Sure. So the easiest would be to go, go to mises.org/primer cuz on that page there's a link to buy it from the Mises store for $5 plus shipping. It's also on Amazon, but then it's like $8 or $9. Um, but on that link, Mises.org slash Primer, you can also download the PDF for free. And I think they also have the EPUB for free. There's an audiobook coming, but it's, it's not released yet.
0: Okay, very cool. Uh, where can the listeners uh, find anything else you're doing or, or follow you?
1: The easiest would probably be Twitter. Uh, so I'm pretty active there. And I, I, I comment on a lot of stuff. I try to stick to economics mostly, but uh, I'm not super successful. So there there might be some some politics involved there too. Um, but my Twitter handle is simply my name. So it's at Per Byland. So P-E-R-B-Y-L-U-N-D.
0: Uh, per, thanks a lot for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: That was Pair Byland. You can pick up his new book, How to Think About the Economy, at Mises.org. You can follow him on Twitter, at Pair Byland. And if you like the Darcy Giroux podcast, subscribe on Substack.